0: Why are you not concerned with helping someone today with your book? And ironically, the way you write a book that lasts is you help someone today. Like, there's no other way. But people, like, writing a book, which is, I like the way you said it, because writing a book that lasts is a way better phrase than, I want to write a massive bestseller, or I want to be famous, or whatever. So, write a book that lasts is is much better. But it's still, the question is why? Why write, like, why? Because even if it does, right? You're going to be, you're, like...
1: This is part two of our interview with Tucker Max. If you missed part one and all about uh, the seven books he's published and sold four million copies of them and now with uh, Scribe Book School and and how he's helping people like me who have been thinking about writing a book forever and have possibly even started but never finish, uh, you really got to go check out his company. It it makes getting a book out a lot easier for people like me and and hopefully you too. Tucker, I want to pick up on what we were talking about there at the end. For anybody who they missed part one, or maybe it's been a while since they listened to part one of our interview, can you reiterate that again when I asked what one of the best pieces of advice you ever received was?
0: Yeah, someone told me, and this is in the context of business advice. They said, the best thing you can do in business is feel your feelings. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's nonsense. And and they were like, no. And and then they kind of walked me through and I realized, oh, it was totally right. That most business problems are not actually business problems that they're people or emotional problems that look like business problems. And that when you actually stop and think about it, it makes total sense. Like like a pure business issue that's just like, like I said, like a logistical problem or like a structure or whatever, those are either, they're not a problem, either it's not much of a problem or it's really easily solvable. But like the people problems are what make almost everything in in business is difficult.
1: So give us a couple of takeaways that you feel like have been beneficial to you along that lines or examples from your life.
0: Oh man, so many. Okay. So I fired myself as CEO of my company. I did this about four years ago. We had done about two and a half million in sales then. Now we're, I think we we're about to either we're about to hit or we just crossed 35 million in sales. And the reason is because I fired, because we brought in a professional CEO who knows what he was a client and we got kind of lucky finding him. But this guy, a name is JT McCormick. He's a total baller. And so we brought him in. And But here's the thing. The only reason I was able to step aside as CEO of a company I founded is because I, to that point, I had done enough emotional work where I was able all... Like, if you look at the situation objectively, I had none of the skills necessary to scale a fast-growing business. I had never done it before. I didn't know how to do it. And then, like, all the... There's just about... Six to eight skills that you need. I had basically none of them except, like, I, let's say I had two of the eight, right? But the other six are crucial. And honestly, I didn't even like them. I, like, <laughs> I don't want to go, go over financial reporting and P&Ls. I don't feel like coaching people through their issues, like, you know, like in, in a work environment. Like, there's a million other things, like, ugh, kill me. I don't want to do any of this, right? But I still, like, it was very hard for me to let go of, of being a CEO because. Not because it was the right decision, but because it was an ego thing, right? It was a, like being a CEO is high status. Being a CEO is the thing you think you're supposed to do. Being CEO is how you know you're accomplished, you know, like at least for a certain set of people and a certain narrative. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that was uh, the, the narrative in my head at the time. So I had to do enough emotional work on myself to realize, oh, like I'm telling myself this story about what it means to be CEO, that's tied to these other emotional issues that I have. But and the way I broke that was very simple. I was like, okay, what why am I doing this company? If it's about the mission, like what I said in the last episode about I believe everyone should write a book, I mean, I'm dead, I couldn't be more serious about that. If it's if if my mission is about if the company is about that mission, then he's clearly the right person to lead this company and to scale it. But if the company is about me and my my ego, not even my ego, because people say here ego and they think it's like arrogance. If, if I'm using the company to help me feel good about myself, then I stay see a CEO and the company suffers. And once I framed it that way, it was like, oh, of course, like I need to bring him in. You know, I need to step, not even bring him in. I need to step aside for him so that he can run this, right? Uh, and it's, everyone's been better off, right? So, but had I not done my emotional
1: work, no chance I could have done that. It was a really hard
0: for decision for me at the at the time.
1: So I want to talk about this because, well, I guess my first question is, I think about this. So I was 28 when I became the CEO of a, of our private equity fund. We started and raised tens of millions of dollars, bought these companies, right? And I ended up with forced humility because, because post 2008, <laughs> yeah. I got forced humility, oh, yeah. okay? Oh, yeah. Can you talk about, for for those of us who recognize the, let's call it a competitive advantage of humility, but yet there's all these things inside of us, especially any kind of hard chargers, right? There's these things that it's almost like self-deception or cognitive dissonance where we, we intentionally avoid subjects that would bring up <laughs> the fact that we need more humility, right? And yet there's so many good things that happen to us and our families and our coworkers and our everyone in our lives, when we choose humility instead of are humbled, you know, like there's that Mike Tyson quote about, I, I'm going to misquote it, but something about if you everyone don't. Everyone has a plan until so they get punched in the face. Okay, there's that one too. But he's got this one about if you don't choose humility, life will choose it for you. Like you will be humbled yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. Any, any practical tips for those of us who have the inkling, ah, I think it would probably be better if I could choose a little more humility in my life.
0: So it comes back to the, the piece of advice that you asked me for. Feel your feelings. If you feel your feelings, then what you will do is understand that almost every single thing you do in your life is designed to keep you from feeling a feeling that is painful or unpleasant, or you don't want to feel. And Mm -hmm. once you start feeling your feelings, then you can let them go and you don't need to do those things. Right? Like, like, Why did I feel like I needed to be the CEO? Well, because CEO's high status and and all that stuff. Okay, why did I feel like I needed to be high status? Then you start asking those questions and it gets real deep into interior core wounds. You know, like sometimes childhood, sometimes other stuff. Well, you know, for me, and and again, the answer would be different for, for any other person. But for me, I was very lonely as a kid, very much ignored. I had all kinds of those issues that come with that. And so like uh, a big reason why I wanted to be why I, I went out and tried to be famous and then after I was done with that kept striving for success is because I wanted to prove both to myself I was worthy of love and to my parents that that I deserved right and once I started unpacking that and, and feeling that that pain from from the feeling and then letting it go, then I didn't need to worry about whether I was CEO or not. I was attached to all those things. This is what the Buddhists call attachments, right? Like I'm putting it more in Western psycho, psychological language. But what the, what the Buddhists would say is release your attachments. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting. <clears throat> I just think about how many good things get contaminated when I'm using them as external proof of my value. Yeah, everything does. Everything eventually eventually
0: it's it's one of those things where like you can you can use that as motivation for a while in a certain uh, situation and get some success sometimes you can get a lot of success for an extended period of time but it's like you will always overshoot the top of that mountain if that's the energy fuel always every single time
1: you know i really liked your practical example there i mean to me as you were saying that i was thinking like go somewhere quiet you know leave the phone at home, leave the phone in the car or something, you know, go sit, go sit in nature or something, you know, park or something, right? Go somewhere quiet and like ask those questions or bring a journal. And like, I felt like you were just asking why and then actually listening to yourself about the answer and then asking why for that. And then actually, you know, listening to that answer instead of trying to ignore it. That works real well. That works real well. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to go another direction. Since we, we talked about, Tim and Ryan in one direction, I want to go another direction. You're obviously friends with them. What What is it about each of them that of all these famous people and cool people and stuff you've had in your life that you've hung on to those two? What what What's something about each of them that maybe not everyone recognizes, but as a personal friend, you find a value?
0: <laughs> so uh, I'm a real honest guy. So Ryan and I aren't really friends anymore. We don't talk much. I mean, I, we're not enemies or anything, but like it's been... A good five or so years since we've since i've seen him i think we've emailed a couple times about certain things
1: okay that's that's fine let's go let's Uh, talk uh, about Tim. Tim.
0: tim's a different tim's a different case like tim comes over to my house all the time for dinner like my wife is real good friends with his girlfriend like we're pretty good friends Uh, i'm good friends with tim well first off he's a brilliant dude he's incredibly compelling in a way that like the obvious ways that if you follow his stuff you you could understand but what's funny man is when i get together with him we don't talk about like the stuff he talks about on his podcast very often sometimes we do he's just one of those dudes man he like sort of like a lot of people say this about me some people are just weird in really awesome ways that, that, are, that are, like, sure. interesting and compelling. And he is really weird, and I mean this in the very best way. Uh, and I joke with him about this all the time. I'm like, why are you such a weird dude, man? Because, like, he has, he has, he is gets hung up about certain things sometimes where I'm like, what, are, what is going on with you, dude? But it's, like, you got to kind of take the good with the bad, like with me, right? Like, there's good things and, and things that are a little weird, a little, little off kilter. Same with him. And uh, He and I both, I think the thing we have in common is that we both decided, we both realized that the conventional wisdom for life is does not work and that we have decided we're going to carve our own path and that we're going to make the life that we want for ourselves. And we obviously made very different choices about a lot of that but like he's made a great life for himself and I have for myself. And I think almost anyone who does that at a minimum has respect for someone else who does, but he and I are also very similar in a lot of ways. And, and I think that's why he, I'm almost like the playful trickster version of him. And he's like the serious engineer version of me, if that makes
1: sense. I love it. Well, you get interviewed a lot. You get covered by the media a lot. Go, go in a different direction here, or it could be a similar direction. What's a question that you feel like people don't ask enough? What's a question U.S. people were asking more when you're getting interviewed? So here's the question
0: that I always ask my famous friends. What are you doing right now that you're afraid to talk about publicly? I mean, or you're not sharing publicly, but you're super into because like that question, the, the, I, I've said this before, the things that, that rich, and I don't mean rich in terms of wealthy, the things that cutting edge people do on their weekends for fun now are the things everyone does in a decade. And so like, like and I've seen this over and over and over, right? Like, I I mean, I was on the paleo bandwagon, you know, the ancestral eating bandwagon a decade ago, because Tim was one of the main ones, but there's some others we like, oh, this is how I'm eating, and then like my life has been has turned upside down. I, internet too, obviously, was an early one, but everyone people forget when like people scoffed at the internet, man. But that was like a big one, and then I'm old enough to remember the transition because I lived through it. And then another huge one are, are psychedelic therapies. Psychedelic as a, psychedelics is a form of uh, therapeutic medicine is the thing that everyone in those circles is talking about and doing and no one is admitting to. Uh, that's why I wrote a huge piece. If you Google PsychoMax MDMA, I wrote like a 9,000-word piece about my first two sessions with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. That's going to be massive and mainstream and a complete world changer within a decade. And most people outside of those circles have no idea what it is. So that's usually the question I like, is what are the things you're afraid to talk about but you're doing? I love it. Which is not a question you can ask me because I talk about everything. (laughs) I'm I'm the dude who will always tell the truth and is always out front of that stuff, which is on one hand why a lot of those people love me. I hang out with a bunch of them. But the other hand is like why I have to take so much crap from people and the world is because if you're, you're better off failing and being late, you're better off failing with conventional wisdom than succeeding with unconventional wisdom. And if you doubt that, look at the life of Nikola Tesla. And I'm not trying to compare myself to him. He was a hyper genius, but that's just a really good example.
1: Yeah. Well, I kind of want to bring things full circle and and bring it back to books because I'm such a nerd for books. But, you know, I look at all the stuff you've done and selling four million copies and things like this. What is it that somebody like a Seth Godin wants to talk to you about when, when you're having those conversations?
0: Yeah. So when Seth and I get together, we've hung out four or five times. We talk shop, man. We talk books. We talk platforms. We talk, but like when I say we talk books, I mean like the deep details. What are you seeing in traditional now? Where's the movement? Like the way that it, like if you were in private equity, when you get together with other PE people, you talk deep in the weeds details, right? Mm -hmm. Same as us, man. Like he he and I are the same. And like I'm in the weeds in so many different fields that there's very few people that I meet that I can't get in the weeds with you know? I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't really know anything about commercial real estate, but like, there's just, there's a lot, almost anyone that I meet, at least in the circles that I run in, I can usually find one or two things that we're comparable levels of experts at so that like, either I can learn a lot from them or I get in the weeds with, I I know enough to learn from them or I know enough to get in the weeds with.
1: Yeah. Well, so I want to talk about something. So if somebody comes to you and they've got a hundred or a hundred thousand dollar budget and they're like they're saying like i want to do whatever it takes to make one of those books that lasts you know one of those exceptional books what what's some advice or what thing what are things that maybe people don't expect right off the bat
0: it's so the first thing i would tell you is it doesn't matter how much money you throw at us there's nothing we can do that can even remotely guarantee that at all sure because no, because like a hundred fifty The content grand, is the content, right? Right. The content, like what you're paying for uh, uh, when you get in the six figures, is quality of writer. And I mean, I, I how many, The library is full of really well written written books that don't really say much. Mm. You know. So like, if, if what, but I would actually. So let's take it back to what we started with. I would ask you, why are you so concerned about writing a book that lasts? Why are you not concerned with helping someone today with your book? And ironically, the way you write a book that lasts is you help someone today. Like, there's no other way. But people, like, writing a book, which is, I like the way you said it. Because writing a book that lasts is a way better phrase than, I want to write a massive bestseller, or I want to be famous, or whatever. So that, that, write a book that lasts is, is much better. But it's still, the question is why. Why write it like what? Because even if it does, right, you're going to be, you're like... You're you'll probably what benefit are you looking for, right? And yeah, we so, know it's last. It's gonna last. No, no, it's be-
1: it's a good que- it's a good question. Like I look at this. So ten years ago, we started a charity called Child Rescue that combats child sex trafficking. So I've recruited these you know Delta Force and FBI and CIA guys that help us, and we do undercover rescue missions with law enforcement. And I basically realize I'm not that good at nonprofit fundraising. Like we didn't we've 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 been able to help lots of, you know, a bunch of kids get out and we've helped some aftercare facilities and stuff, but like not at the level I want to do, which is why I went back to finance. And so for me, as I think about, as I think about a book that can really maybe help the next generation access the wisdom of Warren Buffett and like what completely changed my life around finance wise, I'm thinking about it as a driver to help us raise retail investment dollars and build a a giant real estate investment trust so that I can self-fund child rescue. And so maybe that's not the book I should be writing, you know, maybe it's a different strategy.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, the, the question to ask yourself when writing a book, it first, the first question, what do you want your
1: book to achieve for you? Well, what if, yeah, what if I want it to drive business for our investment firm?
0: Okay, so great. So if, drive business investment firm. Okay, then who do you need to reach to do that?
1: Ent- entrepreneurs with enough money to buy passive income who are, they're too stressed out because they got all their eggs in one basket and, and they need to buy a second passive income stream they can actually believe in.
0: Okay, then the next question is, what do you know that is, really valuable to those people? I think you kind of already said the answer. You know exactly how to build, you know, to easily give them a second or third passive income stream.
1: Yeah. Essentially what the largest pension funds and sovereign wealth funds in the world are doing with Blackstone and Brookfield, we can show them how mere mortals, you know, regular humans can access that same asset class. The,
0: the, I mean, that that seems like it solves a huge problem for them That's that's like a big deal. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great. If what you really want is to drive business Mm -hmm. and that's really your audience, then that book pretty clearly meets a big need that that audience has. And that will drive the clear as day. Like, I mean, this is a bit, we just had a basic positioning call like or a positioning discussion <laughs> sure. no seriously what do you want who are you trying to re- who do you need to reach to get that why are they going to care yeah and those are all very strong answers it all aligns i'm not saying it's the right book for you because yeah. the thing i can't tell you from that discussion is what you really want and what actually matters to you that's a subjective sort of thing i can keep asking you questions to help you figure it out
1: yeah well so i have like a a real big personal soapbox about the difference between speculation and investment, as Warren Buffett's mentor, Ben Graham, would define them. And I I made enough money to retire in my 20s, two different times, and I lost it all both times. Hence the reason the third time I'm going to buy it in uh, something that's what Ben Graham would call an investment, not a speculative adventure. And I guess I'm kind of pissed off that the business community knows about this stuff, but it It gets pushed to the sideline because it's just not so sexy. It's not like winning. You don't get the endorphin release, like winning the lottery or winning in Vegas. And so we get pushed into speculation so much, you know, anything that doesn't have safety of principle and an adequate return. And I guess I feel like there I've been coaching CEOs for like a decade since running my private equity fund. And it's like the same story with different players every time and there's just so much unnecessary stress by what the business media told us we're supposed to be doing with our time and money and i have kind of a soapbox about it i guess okay so and and if i let's say that i really do commit to this what do i what do i do before i'm reaching out to you guys like what am i putting together what should i be outlining and these kind of things before i'm before i'm coming to you guys
0: I don't think you need to put anything together. Like that's, we've, we developed our process so that you can just, if you want to write a book, you can show up. And that we help you understand if you should write a book, if you have a book in you, if that book will be worth your time. Right. And so we haven't had the whole discussion, although yeah, we, yeah. we could, if you want, <laughs> but, but we, we've definitely had the, do you have a book in you discussion? Yeah. Like, you, you clearly have a book in you. You're an expert in this, you know, this field really well should you write a book we've kind of answered we haven't dove super deep in and then we definitely but we definitely answered well we answered it whether it would be worth your time sort of we haven't quite dove in it's pretty clearly going to be worth it but then the sorry the the should discussion kind of impacts that a lot too right so like but uh, in terms of like doing work on the book ahead of time that almost defeats it doesn't defeat the purpose of working with us but you're way better off just coming to us help let us help you think through
1: all these things
0: and get clear answers
1: yeah i love it well i've got a lot of friends clients former clients that i think uh, are going to be coming to check out your website so this this has been great
0: awesome man happy to help
1: yeah what's what do you want to close with what's what's a good what's a good bit of knowledge or or thing you want to talk about to close with here oh man we've covered a lot I don't know it, it like
0: i like okay, since we're on books I'll just stay there the thing I, I will tell you is that if you want to write a book if you think you kind of have that itch I promise you once you start to scratch it you'll realize the itch is way bigger than you realized <laughs> like I, I see almost know it there are a few exceptions of course But the vast majority of people who once they get started, they like realize, oh, man, I wanted this big time. And I was afraid to admit to myself before how much I wanted it because I wasn't sure I could do it. Now that I see I can do it, like I'm super in and we have so many authors who finish one book and they're like, boom, right on to their second. And then it becomes like writer becomes part of their identity. And they like they're so happy they did this.
1: I love it. That's great. Yeah, I can I can see uh, once the dam breaks, you know, I can see it being hard to stop at one book, right? Yep. Well, hey, this is great. Appreciate Appreciate all the time you've given us here.
0: Of course, man. My pleasure.
1: Okay. Thanks, everybody.